You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Today, Carlos and Satch are talking about intestinal bacteria, Genghis Khan, and the wisdom of ancient Chinese doctors. You know, I, I grew up as a vegetarian, right? Mm. Um, and all my life I, I heard, if, you know, you're a vegetarian, you're going to get anemic, you know, because vegetarians right. don't get enough vitamin B12 and, you know, you can only get that from meat. And I think our discussion about bacteria has reminded me of something that I had learned in the past, which was that the meat isn't making B12 either. Hmm. Um, it's bacteria that make B12. And if the cows, the pigs, the chickens, if they're eating grains or, you know, food that is maybe not held to the same cleanliness standards that human food is, there's going to be bacteria on that food. So they're actually eating the bacteria that are producing the B12. And it's, it's a fascinating idea is that if maybe we ate food that was just a little bit not so clean, you know, that uh, maybe there wouldn't be as much uh, anemia in vegetarians, you know, right. but pesticides kill those bacteria. Um, we wash everything, we boil everything, not to say we shouldn't wash our food, but, you know, it's the idea that humans... Um, lived a long time on this planet with not necessarily the same cleanliness standards and that it's not always bad. There are some benefits to that. Um, it's an interesting idea anyway. Right. And, you know, some nutritional content is absorbed better when it's cooked, if it's not overcooked. Mm. And some is absolutely destroyed by overcooking. So right. it's yeah. pretty key. I mean, obviously enzymes don't, don't withstand high heat and mm. bacteria doesn't either. So yeah. if you're going to get some of those positive bacteria uh, strains into your body. And if you're going to get some of the enzymes into your body and, and even things like, um, well, vitamin C and um, MSM, methyl sulfonyl methane, right. Mm -hmm, Which mm -hmm. helps repair and connective tissues. Yeah, yeah. Those things get cooked out of food real easily. So I think you do exactly. need a good mix of, you know, good old fashioned healthy roughage from, you know, fresh vegetables and fruit and, or hopefully organically, um, grown foods that don't have, you know, a bunch of um, toxic chemicals on them and things like that. Yeah. But you've got to get a lot of that in your system, even if you are taking in cooked food. And yeah. I would imagine um, anybody who leads a healthy lifestyle would need that even more because they need all those vitamins yeah. and minerals. Right. And, right. You know. I'm reminded of a, of a time I saw a show it was with some Inuit people or Eskimos, mm -hmm. um, that, that part of the world. And they were talking about how they stay warm when they're out in the freezing cold in the snow. And their answer to that was um, not to cook your meat. So hmm. when you when you eat raw meat, you'll stay warm out in those freezing temperatures. If you cook your meat, you'll freeze. Right. So there's it, it's just a reminder that there's all kinds of things that maybe we don't even yet understand about food and cooking food. And, you know, there, there's so much more to learn. You know? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, uh, what, what are your thoughts about, um, uh, what do you have to say about fermentation? Well, 
one thing, uh, some cultures do a lot of it. I mean, you'll find Asians mm. fermenting a lot. I mean, you see the kimchi and a lot of the Vietnamese do it and the Chinese, they ferment their vegetables in clay pots and so on. Yeah. And that's a bacteriologically rich kind of a food. Yeah. And, you know, it's a remedy for them. But we don't do it as much here. We, you know, we tend to, um, when we do eat pickled foods, it's dead. It's not live. Um, it's done with chemicals and things to, to get them to ferment. And then right. uh, by the time it gets into your mouth and you're chewing it up, it's not even um, active anymore. Yeah, it's, and it's, then, it's the, the, the finished product of fermentation, right. just vinegar or something, and it's not, not, like, not living. Much yeah. like alcohol. I mean, alcohol is yeah. a fermented food, but it's, it's dead fermented food in a sense. There's, there's a <laughs> euphoric relaxing quality to it which yeah. is possibly beneficial but um it's not really it's not necessarily good for your digestion or for your overall health right I mean, besides the um, blood pressure components there with the red wine and things like that but i mean as far as being a living food um it just doesn't have that yeah and i would think that when you have a portion of your food that is fermented I could argue that that's similar in some ways to a primal human being who's eating some foods that haven't been refrigerated and maybe are starting right. to ferment a little bit. Yeah. You know, and, and if we had stronger HCL in our stomachs mm -hmm. to kill off the bad bacterias and the strains that actually made it through benefited us, we did it in the right way and the right balance. I, I could imagine that making us a lot stronger and healthier. Yeah. Yeah. And there right. are a lot of right. um, manuals and in, in places like health food stores where you can find ways to ferment vegetables and things. Oh, yeah. And, and I know that you and I have both done this. Mm -hmm. You know, we know others that, that do wild fermentation at home. Yeah. And I got to admit, the first time I did it, you know, I made some sauerkraut and some fermented vegetables at home. And I had to overcome a massive mental barrier to put that vegetable in my mouth for the very first time because <laughs> I saw it bubbling on top of my refrigerator for, for, you know, days upon days. And it took some guts, speaking of guts in this yeah, conversation, right it on. took some guts to get that into my guts. You nice. know, I mean, I, I, I opened this thing up. I'm seeing like that, that cabbage and those carrots and stuff have been sitting in that jar for, you know, a week, week and a half. And I took it out and I had to like, okay, all right, three, two, one, go. And I pop it in my mouth. And I'm like, oh, that's actually quite tasty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was, I was amazed because I, I think we're, we're a little bit freaked out, you know, in our culture, especially, you know, in the United States, you know, where, where, where we have um, illnesses. Yeah. Foodborne illnesses. Threaten your life. Botulism, you yeah. know, and all these things. And, and it turns out that when you start learning about fermented food, it's actually incredibly safe mm -hmm. because because those bad bacteria they can't survive in there very well with those those healthy bacteria the ones that we need you know inside of our gut it's all about um, ph yeah yeah and uh it was it was you know a heck of an experience to have done that myself at home yeah i was uh speaking of nervousness around a food creation i was nervous the first time i put a spoonful of my own yogurt Oh yeah. You know, when I made that, um, the first time I thought, Ooh, I hope this doesn't turn my tummy. Right. You can, but, you can picture yourself in the emergency room or something, right, you know? Yeah. Or, or at least tossing yeah. it up somehow, right. uh, distastefully. But, um, you know, it's a bit like the concept of eating your own cooking. 
You yeah. Know, if you, you know, I, I believed in the idea of it and I wanted to try it. And before I pawn it off on anybody else, I want yeah. to make sure that I, I could eat it myself and I enjoy it. Right. And I, make, I make kimchi still. I still have a, a big jar of spicy kimchi because I don't go through it that quickly. But yeah, um, I made a lot of it and it came out really, really tasty. Nice. Really good. Very good. Yeah. I've made, you know, fermented vegetables. I've made uh, interesting sauerkrauts and, and things mm. like that. And uh, it's a heck of an experience. I mean, anybody who has not done this, I would highly encourage to do it. You have to have the experience yourself to go, oh my gosh, I made that. And it's yeah. got these healthy bacteria in it. And, you know, you can notice a difference in your gut, you know, um, eating food like that. I did feel a little bit of a transition mm-hmm. for a few days, you know. Um, but I felt like my gut overcame it rather quickly and actually felt better afterwards. That's really great. Well, yeah. and, and there's so many options. There's even uh, lactose-free options. And, you know, people can do uh, coconut kefir if they really can't sure. digest milk. Although... Yeah. Most people do find um, that if they had trouble digesting pasteurized milk products, they're actually okay with things like kefir. Yeah, that's and right. Kefir, that's right. However you pronounce that, um, yeah, is like yogurt, like liquid yogurt in a way. It just is a slightly mm-hmm. different process, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's it's very rich in B vitamins and and all those active right. cultures that are good for you. Um, yeah, so so. Once it goes through that process, the the lactose, the those um, sugars that come from the milk, are all but digested, and so it doesn't right. really trigger the same kind of reaction unless someone has a um, an allergy to casein, you know, the milk protein sure. or sure, something. Exactly. But yeah. then then there's uh, coconut kefir. Yeah, that's right. And there are all, all sorts of uh, tasty herbal drinks that you can make that are fizzy. You know, mm-hmm. like we like to have our sodas or whatever, you can yeah. make low sugar versions of really tasty ginger ale, for example, by fermenting some right. of the ginger, yeah. putting some of the kefir water in there, letting it sit, and then it bubbles. And eventually you put it in a container and seal it. And you've got this really excellent homemade ginger ale and you can make herbal mm-hmm. variants of it by adding things like, I mean, imagine a Thai ginger, basil, lemon, yeah. bubbling soft drink. Right. I mean, and you can do that. Wow. Yeah. You can probably go on YouTube and find something like that. Exactly. I mean, people can do this at home and have that experience. All this stuff so easily uh, done these days because there are a lot of people who, who've blazed that trail and there's free information on how to do it. It's not hard at all. It's not unsafe and you just need, just need a few things and it's, you're raring to go. Genghis Khan, we know, conquered mass amounts of territory, and he absorbed the cultures around him and said, basically, yeah. we, we are the Borg, you know, um, mm-hmm. your uniqueness will be added to our own resistance yeah. is futile. You know, he, he went and, and he spread um, throughout the lands and conquered those lands. And one of the problems that occurred for a lot of people at that time was dysentery and other gastrointestinal problems like dysentery. One of the best ways to prevent that besides clean sources and things like that is to have a very strong immune system, strong intestinal flora. Mm -hmm. And Genghis Khan is known to have demanded that all of his troops have yogurt 
and they made whatever it might have been goat yogurt or yak yogurt yak or whatever yogurt it was. or whatever yeah. they had locally at the time but they, they would make yeah. yogurt <laughs> and it would be this fermented beverage that they would drink and it made them quite strong and resistant to many disease and illnesses and um and the other people that didn't do that well you know we know what happened i mean they yeah you know dysentery can knock out two-thirds of your army, and then what are you going to do? Right, exactly. It's hard to fight when you have diarrhea. <laughs> it is hard to fight. Yeah. I, you know, it happens to me all the time. And yeah. I just know right. it's really hard to fight when I have diarrhea. Yeah. But yeah, um, so it's it's great, and, and it was a really powerful, I think, um, it has its place in history to think of how important, you know, cultured foods like yogurt and kefir mm-hmm. and things like that, and their place in society. I mean, we probably yeah. wouldn't have develop the kinds of society that we have without being able to master the art of preserving foods and fermenting foods and all the things that came, including all the orgies and parties yeah. of the Greeks sure, and, all, sure. and the Egyptians yeah. and all the um, you know Vikings and, and uh, today all the wineries that we visit and yeah. brew houses and so on. Mm-hmm. I mean, just fermenting is a gift. Yeah, you know, humankind has done many great things with it. Those little bacteria—they're—they're they're good buddies. They're they helping us out. Buddies. They are helping us out. You know, they make me feel more cultured. Yeah, very good. The bacteria in your intestines. They are utilizing resources. And so imagine a, uh, a dangerous bacteria were to gain entry into somebody's colon, let's say, uh, or their small intestine and could make them sick. Well, that bacteria is now living in a community with, you know, a hundred trillion or so other bacteria. Hmm. And those other bacteria are um, utilizing resources. And so the bad bacteria now has to compete for resources with these healthy bacteria. And they tend to lose that battle because the intestinal flora are more suitable to that environment. They know how to succeed in that environment. They're going to beat out the foreign invader. The other interesting thing is that, uh, uh, a bacteria that could cause illness might get into somebody's gut and it needs a place to adhere to. It's got to stick to the epithelial lining inside the intestines. Mm. And they have to also compete for um, space. You know, like they, they have to have some place to cling. And there's no place to cling when you've got trillions of other cells in there that are supposed to be there that have always, all, already set up shop. And they're living there. Um, you know, there's, there's no room for these other bacteria. Um, and so uh, it's, it's really quite simple. You know, there's no room for the bad guys when your gut or your urinary tract or your nasal cavity or your mouth or maybe even your ears or your skin um, when all the seats are taken by the good guys, you know. So it's yeah. just, you know, it's a fascinating thing. That makes so much sense, Satch. Um, and speaking on, on that, um, and th- this may um, shock some people who are into health food, but alkaline water is a huge thing these days and from what i've gathered it's a huge mistake Mm. to drink tons and tons of alkaline water because your stomach acid is acid acid hcl and you're dumping an alkaline substance directly into your acid environment well what's going to happen you're going to dilute the stomach acid and what does that cause causes changes in your digestion that might not be Mm -hmm. uh, healthy for you 
a lot of misconceptions about the whole acid alkaline thing when it comes sure. to foods. There's a difference between taking a fresh, um, raw vegetable, chewing and eating it, mm-hmm. which may have acidic properties, but digests in the body and allows your bloodstream to produce more alkaline chemistry. Yes, yes. There's a difference between that and saying that the fruit or vegetable is alkaline. An orange yeah. is not alkaline. It's, but a fresh orange, when you digest it, well, first of all, it's acidic. And as it breaks down mm-hmm. because of the living enzymes and the chemistry and the way your body handles it, you do produce more uh, alkaline components in your blood, which blood needs to be slightly alkaline, but there's lots of yeah. parts of the body that do not need to be alkaline. In fact, if they are alkaline, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, in Chinese medicine, we talk about foods and herbal medicines as having a nature and Mm. the nature is usually likened to a temperature you know that some foods are warming some foods are cooling some herbs are hot some herbs are cold some herbs are neutral Mm. Um, what's interesting about it is that we often talk about the nature of the food itself as well as the post-digestive nature of the food. So that if you were to eat something, like for example, you might drink um, a cold beverage that its temperature is cold, but its post-digestive temperature is warm. Interesting. You know, know, so, so it's like if you were to make chili pepper ice cream, that's a cold experience, but the nature of the ice cream is actually warm, you know? Yeah. So it, good it's, point. That, that's an ancient concept in Chinese medicine that once you digest something, it could have a very different effect than the nature of that, that food or herb before you eat it, before you consume it. That's fascinating. You know? How do you suppose that they discovered those things or classified those things? I mean, what's the logic behind it that yeah, they used sure, to try to sure. figure that out? Sometimes it was just simply looking at what does the substance do in the body? For example, if something makes you sweat, then, well, heat makes you sweat. On a hot day, you sweat. So therefore, does that mean that the nature of that food or that herb is warm or hot or something? Um, Sometimes it actually has to do with how it makes you feel. Sometimes you do consume things and they do make you a little bit cold, you know? Um, But I think the other thing is that ancient Chinese doctors... um, having less distractions in their environment, um, having to sit, you know, in silence, just in nature, you know, are a little Mm. bit more in tune with their bodies. This is sort of the theory that they were Mm. a little bit more in tune with their bodies. Um, and that people in those societies noticed things that maybe people in our society don't, you know, when you're, um, rocking out your MP3 player and you're driving down the freeway and you're late for some place, you're maybe not noticing the amount of gas building up in your intestines from the milk tea that you just had, you know, a little while you know, uh, earlier yeah. in the day, you know, so, so we're not as in tune with our bodies because we have so many outside distractions and those ancient cultures did not have as many of those distractions. And so they're a little bit more able to notice what was occurring in their body. I've had that experience, um, when I was doing Vipassana meditation, you know, um, day after day of doing deep meditation, I started to notice things about myself that I didn't notice before. I thought, and and it caused me to think about these things. Yeah, you know, it is very down to earth to think that you can perceive how something would affect you. And I do recall a time 
when after several days of meditation, in the evening, I switched to a different herbal tea that I was drinking. Because, you know, during Vipassana, you're not really supposed to have dinner. But maybe you could have, you know, some lemon water or some herb tea or something. And I ate, or I I didn't eat, I drank a spicy tea that had a lot of cinnamon and cardamom and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, those types of, uh, you know, warm spices. Warm by Chinese medicine, you know, um, logic anyway. And I must admit, to my surprise, I was not expecting this. In the evening meditation, I felt very hot, sweaty, and agitated. I actually felt stingy on my skin. Wow. And I had never felt anything like that before, but it was because my distractions were eliminated. I was tuning into my body at a deep level. And I recall that experience as a very teachable moment. Like, wow, I cannot meditate and drink that spicy tea anymore, you know, because I experienced the hot, pungent nature of those ingredients that were in that. And it was a simple herb tea. It was like one tea bag, you know, something that we wouldn't think of, of as being very powerful, but, oh, it was powerful. I had a terrible meditation. What a great example of what you were just saying about the ancient doctors. Yeah. And this, you know, you had um, this environment where you're totally focused in on your perceptions and you were developing a really refined level of attention being held for long periods of time until you gained the ability to differentiate very small and subtle differences. And when you were tuned to that level of awareness and the volume, so to speak, was cranked up very high in comparison to your normal everyday existence. That's exactly you noticed this like. very, um, well, by most people's standards, um, insignificant difference to you was very significant during that time, right? Right, right, exactly. What a great example. And, and you know, it, it also causes me to think that what if your intestinal bacteria were imbalanced, creating byproducts of a hot nature? Yeah. Or byproducts of a cold nature. Right. And over the course of five years, 10 years, 20 years, a lifetime, we're simply unaware because we never had an opportunity to know or to think or to notice, you know, or to understand. Um, but, uh, you know, again, so much to learn about these things, right. but sometimes a simple, exper- a, a simple experience that somebody has really can have a tremendous amount of value that has affected me ever since I had that experience. And and it's caused me to really buy into this idea of, of hot herbs, cold herbs, neutral herbs, mm. you know, um, uh, even the flavors of herbs though in Chinese medicine, they'll say that, Oh, this herb is uh, sweet. And I taste it and I go, it doesn't seem sweet to me, but then they'll also say that a potato is sweet. Right. I think, well, you know, if you think about it, it is a starchy and rice. sweet. Yeah, and rice is considered sweet, right? Yeah. So there is an element of sweetness, but maybe with such gross perceptions, um, we just simply miss it. Listening to the Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Next up, Carlos and Satch talk about the Human Microbiome Project, which eventually leads to an interesting discussion about the nature of the self. Stay tuned. Thank you.
So the uh, National Institutes of Health has the Human Microbiome Project, and this is kind of a really neat, big, you know, project that's out there now that's yeah. right up our alleys. I mean, they're they're promoting these scientists to do this interesting research on investigating um, the human microbiome and all the bacteria that are not only in our intestines, but on our skin and in our noses and our eyes and our ears and our mouths. And, and this is producing some fascinating research. One interesting thing that they recently uh, discovered is a bacteria in the gut called Christensenella minuta and uh, or C. minuta. And C. minuta is involved in lean body types. And so did you read this, Carlos? I did. Actually, you reminded me of Tiny Tim for some reason when you said that. What Tom I, Thumb. Tom you know, Thumb? Sounds, sounds like a little, <laughs> like a small uh, Nordic person from, yeah. a, from a fairy tale or something like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, Christentinella so, Minuta. Yes, I like it. Um, lived in a pocket. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he if, went to school with Johnny or <laughs> Johan. You're killing me over here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, this bacteria, it's fascinating because they, they took mice in this study, they took mice that were obese and they took, and they took this bacteria and they put it into, um, these overweight mice and they lost weight. It's fascinating. It is just the whole, the whole thought that, um, you know, whatever was going on bacteriologically was controlling their met- metabolism. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's fascinating. I mean, people didn't talk about that 10 years ago, really. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And so it, it brings up the question, is the bacteria really controlling the host? I mean, it would, it would seem that there is some control of the host by these bacteria. And this is not the first time this has happened. Right. They've also found in this um, human microbiome project, uh, another uh, study was looking at how the bacteria can actually affect the circadian rhythm of the host. It can play with your sleep and wake cycles. I mean, this is a, this little tiny bacteria creating chemistry that can affect the way your brain behaves. Right. Yeah, because they are just doing recent studies um, with DNA, and they're finding that people who are night owls, there, there are certain genetic predispositions that can be measured that they find consistently in people who are naturally night owls. Like me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Yeah, and so, um, you know, it makes you, well, kind of brings, brings the question to mind, uh, is it is the microbiomes or is it uh, specifically the DNA? I mean, it's curious. Yeah, it is. It's fascinating. Um, the The study on the circadian rhythms, they were talking about how the bacteria produce butyric acid, mm. which ends up having this effect on the brain. Mm-hmm. What they found in previous studies was that the host could affect the cycles of behavior of the bacteria which makes sense because they're going to become active versus less active based upon when we eat, when we sleep, because they're feeding off of us, right? right. So we're naturally going to affect them. But guess what? They affect us too. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. We were just looking at that um, uh, article talking about acne mm-hmm. and the microbiome on the skin, right? Or the, the, uh, the bacteria on the skin, how, how certain bacteria cause the acne but then we give antibiotics to kill those bacteria to treat the acne when another approach is that there are that there was from the beginning just an imbalance 
of the bacteria on the skin. So there's all these other bacteria on the skin that inhibit infections and things like that. And maybe we should just bring those guys up because they know how to handle the bacteria that's causing the acne. Rather than creating a solution that actually becomes a problem. Yeah, and then we kill all of them and then it's anybody's guess who's going to repopulate the skin. Right. You know? I mean, Um, this has to necessarily change your philosophy because, um, you know, arguably, you know, you, you filter what it is you're looking for based upon your underlying outlook. Yeah. You know, your AKA your philosophy. Yeah. So, um, you know, as you, as we start to incorporate more complex, um, systems thinking, Mm -hmm. it has to change the way we filter the world. It's our internal representation. It's a structure of our reality of how we're, um, structuring our search within that philosophical and belief centered set of filters that allows us to look for new information. Yeah. Well, this reminds me, um, one time I was telling this psychiatrist about an experience I had when I was in India. Uh, These ladies would come to the hotel room and they would ask if they could clean the rooms for us. And so you give them some rupees and these are, these are very, very poor people and not roofies, not roofies, right? Rupees, (laughs) Rupees, right? Uh, Indian currency. Mm. Um, And for, you know, a handful of rupees, they'll, they'll wipe up your room and clean everything. And so the lady that was cleaning our room had this rag and she was cleaning up all around the toilet. Now, mind you in India, these, this is a hole in the ground. Okay. That's, that's what I mean when I say toilet, she's cleaning up all this, this, kind of, you know, not so nice stuff around the toilet. Then she just reaches over and grabs a plate and starts wiping the plate with the same rag. So then she left. And then my mom, of course, quickly recleaned everything in the whole place. Right. And then the psychiatrist says, doesn't our knowledge of bacteria just change the way we look at the world? Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I mean, we have a totally different internal representation than this lady who does not have a concept of bacteria. That's not something in her realm of, of knowledge or understanding. And I'm sure many of us listening to this are cringing as much as I am. Just, yes. just even thinking about that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I try not to think about it. Right. Yeah. Try not to think about it. Could you talk a little bit about the different types of supplement categories or substances yeah. people that might, you know, what, what, what do people need to know about this topic? Yeah. So, so, so probiotics, as, as we've mentioned before, you know, you find them in, in uh, fermented foods and things, but um, when what they do, is, you know, they, they, they assist you with your immunity and so many things that we've mentioned already, um, even some cancer fighting properties and so on. Um, but prebiotics are uh, non-digestible food ingredients that actually assist the growth of specific probiotics. So you can find them in things like, um, you know, wheat, onions, bananas, honey, garlic, leeks. You know, there's a lot of food products that actually support the growth of very specific intestinal bacteria. Inulin is another thing that you find, uh, like like in cabbage, I believe. Um, And it just supports that growth of of the positive uh, bacteria in your colon. FOS is another one, fructooligosaccharide, right? It's, it's this, um, you know, indigestible probiotic supporting additive. And they'll include that with a probiotic supplement so that you get more bang for your buck. You know, you're not only adding the bacteria, but you're also putting in uh, an ingredient that will, will allow um, better hosting, better growth of that mm. and nurture more of your natural 
intestinal growth. So there are prebiotics, mm -hmm. which are not the bacteria, but substances that promote the bacteria. Right. Then there are probiotics, which are the bacteria themselves, the, right. the positive bacteria themselves. And then there yes. are combinations. Yes, there are combinations of different ones for different effects. Um, you know, the sort of process of combining them in a beneficial way is called symbiotics. Symbiotics. Yeah, you're, okay. you're creating a synthesis of the probiotics and the prebiotics in such a way to create, you know, a result. You're trying to create a more healthy environment for your intestinal bacteria. Okay. Um, and it should be stated that the um, prebiotics are indigestible. That's how, why they get to go all the way down into your colon without... Right. You know, being destroyed by your stomach acid and things like that. And, you yeah. know, a lot of probiotics do get destroyed by your digestive acids because that's, well, that's kind of what your digestive acid is supposed to do. Besides yeah. breaking down food, it's also to protect you from negative bacteria. Right. Kill little bacteria and viruses and yeah, funguses and it, it sometimes fungi. kills, uh, um, you know, with prejudice and sometimes it kills without prejudice. Right. You know, all even the good stuff sometimes gets you know, murdered by yeah. the uh, <laughs> strong HCL in your stomach. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can, depending on how you eat things, that's why things with fiber protects, um, you know, when you eat whole foods, you're getting a lot of times a lot of that stuff trapped inside the fiber and it protects it and allows it to get all the way down into your intestines. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So prebiotics, mm -hmm. probiotics, and symbiotics. No, no, I think you had said a little while ago that um, some natural sources of things like FOS, for example, would be onions, yeah, garlic, leeks, um, honey, bananas, these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and uncooked honey, uh, by the yeah, way. yeah, uncooked honey. And yeah. I would say probably for all those things, un yeah. uncooked bananas. I Definitely. Mean, well, I mean, we don't usually cook our bananas. But it's not. It's not the banana starbursts. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Um, but, um, you know, eating raw garlic, eating raw onions. Yeah. Have you ever picked up an onion and just ate it like an apple? I have. Yeah. It's quite an experience. It is an experience. It really With is. mustard on it, believe it or not. Really? No, yeah. that I have not tried. Yeah. Was, apparently, I like intense experiences. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I watched a cooking show. I think it was Gordon Ramsay on hmm. YouTube talking about how to, how to cut an onion. And you got to avoid that little eye because that's the part that like really makes your eyes water. Mm -hmm. You know, the little eye of the onion up, up on the top, the little knob. Mm. Um, shoot, I just might go home and peel an onion a little bit and just chomp down like an apple. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, I hear that that goes over really well with wives. Yes, yes, wives. Yeah, if, you, if you eat an onion right before bed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I hear that. That's, They're that guaranteed very to leave you alone so you can sleep. Right. Yeah, yeah, which is an, always a problem for us, right? Um, well, speaking of, of eating things like apples, um, mm. is it true that there is a particular type of apple that seems to promote a very special probiotic bacteria? That's really fascinating. Um, I have read that eating Granny Smith apples... Of all the apples, from Brayburn's, Fuji's, Golden Delicious, all that, it was the specifically the Granny Smith apples that seemed to promote an increase in the C. minuta, or the uh, Christian Sinella minuta, mm -hmm. which is that, that one strain of gut bacteria that seems to be present in the, in the skinnier, um, you know, the leaner types, right? And yeah. isn't very present at all in the obese types right. of, um, of body, right? Um, that seems to promote it. Of course, um, you know, 
this is yet to be totally confirmed all across the board, but in some studies that, that they did, they actually found that to be true. Mm-hmm. So gosh, um, it's time to eat some more Granny Smith apples, Granny right? Granny Smith apples. They're, they're the one apple that gets the least love. <laughs> it's true. You know, I mean, they're, they're hard and they're tart. Dry. They're dry. Stringent. They're there they are, but, um, but they have something nice to share with us, perhaps. They do. Yeah. And, and uh, um, I think this is an interesting correlation. Uh, in Ayurvedic medicine, uh, I was always taught that um, it's the, you know, apples in general, right? A little bit more on the coffee mm-hmm. side because they're mm-hmm. more stringing as far as fruit goes. But it's specifically the Granny Smiths that are the most astringent and most sort of dry, right? Yeah. And those are most um, beneficial for kapha. Yeah. And, Make, and and kapha would be the body type of, right, there's, there's three body types, yes. right? Um, kapha, pitta, and vata. Right. And, and kapha would be the heavier, phlegm-producing, yes. so more more obese types of people would be more likely to be kapha. They tend to hang on to water more. They tend to hang on to food more. They tend to gain weight more easily. Mm. Um, you know, their, their digestion seems to be a little bit slower. Yeah. The traditional advice for kapha tends to be that they need to eat the astringent fruits rather than the real sweet, heavy fruits. Look at that ancient Indian wisdom validated by modern science. Yeah. Or you could just clean your plates with a dirty rag, like the lady in India did when she was cleaning our rooms. But Yeah, I'm sure if you had a, a good uh, bacteriological infection or a, a virus or a parasite, you'd probably, you know, certain ones would probably have to yeah. lose a lot of weight very rapidly. Yeah. Talk about a fecal transplant. Oh my god! Literally taking it right from the hole in the ground to your plate. Talk about yeah. not being able to eat for six months. Disgusting. So it leads me to an interesting question. Another fruit that is recommended for kapha types is jujube. Oh, Have da- you ever had a jujube? Yes. Okay. And Absolutely. For those who are listening, we are not talking about the candy that yes. you see at the movie theaters. Yeah. Um, it's not a gummy bear or some kind of yeah. gummy candy. It's an actual fruit called jujube. Yes. And it's a small little fruit that is extremely astringent. It's, it's sort of a dry, uh, slightly sweet, almost apple-y taste mm-hmm. to yeah. it, but not quite. I mean, yeah. it has its own flavor, but that's another fruit that is um, recommended for kapha. And I would wonder just, you know, the, the traditional side of me as well as the uh, scientifically curious side of me wants to know whether they'll eventually find that jujube has some similar properties right. as far as supporting the, you know... Uh, Christian Sinella Minuta bacteria. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's a, it's logical, not necessarily true, but I sure. would love to find out that's true. You know, in Chinese medicine, uh, jujubes are, uh, well, well, the fruit part, mm-hmm. right, uh, is dazao. Oh, that's the, that's oh, right. Large okay. dates. Yeah. Um, when you eat them like right off the tree, they do have a little bit of a, an apple kind of a quality to them kind of woody pulpy yeah dry we we are used to seeing them in the in the chinese medicine community once they're dried out like dates 
Yeah. So, the, so it translates, you know, Datsao translates as like large dates. It's not at all like, you know, the Medjool dates or right. <laughs> anything like that. And not um, in the date family either, right? No, I don't, I don't believe they are. They just call them, you know. Because dates uh, are extremely dates. sugary. Oh, very sugary, yeah. But, but jujubes are not. These jujubes are in almost every Chinese medicine formula. They're usually combined with licorice root, uh, mm-hmm. gunsao, mm-hmm. uh, radix glyceriza. And that combination of licorice root and jujube fruits sort of harmonizes all of the other ingredients in the formula to make it, you know, digestible and make all of the ingredients interact smoothly with each other. And it makes me wonder mm, yeah. if, I mean, they probably would not have known about intestinal bacteria, obviously, back then, right. but they were maybe doing something with it. Maybe they were assisting with the absorption, right. the assimilation of of these powerful, sometimes nasty tasting decoctions. Right. Um, now, these fruits would nourish the heart. They would nourish blood, mm-hmm. but also have some strengthening effect on your digestive system. And a weak digestion in Chinese medicine leads to phlegm. Phlegm, in Chinese medicine terms, is not just mucus, but accumulations in the body like lipomas, tumors, bone spurs, and adipose tissue. So like if you're fat and overweight, mm-hmm. you have a phlegmy constitution, just like what you described as the kapha body type in Ayurvedic yeah. medicine. So there you go. Can, it's, yeah. Can we get into that for just a second? Yeah, yeah, um, sure. Because I'm realizing as I'm listening to you here that um, it's kind of like, you know, when you speak jargon with somebody who kind of has a basic understanding of the jargon already, uh, a person listening c- could maybe have a difficulty forming the same connections because you're yeah. using some inside language, right? Sure. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, what phlegm really is? Because I know it's yeah. not, we're not really talking about just the Western concept of what phlegm is, right? Correct. We're talking Correct. about something that includes that, but is also something else. Right. Because you talked about right. uh, bone spurs and obesity and, and certainly adipose tissue is not mucus per se, but yeah. from the perspective of Chinese medicine and the way you're discussing it yeah. in those traditional uh, ideas, it is discussed that way as though it is. Yeah. Right? So, so what's sure, all that all about? Sure. So, so in Chinese medicine, well, in the English version of Chinese medicine, we are using English words to represent Chinese words or Chinese characters. Right. And we just have to choose the best word we can find. These are two different languages. There's no such thing as a perfect transposition from this word is always going to be that word. And right? different worldviews too. And different, totally different world worldviews. And different eras. Different that it was exactly, in. exactly. So the different word, cosmologies, <laughs> right? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, the toilets like flush the opposite direction. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, the word phlegm in English refers to a mucus type of material. We all know this, right? Mm-hmm. In Chinese, it's, it's... Anyone who's had a cold knows that. Anybody, yeah. In Chinese, it's the word is tan. Okay, tan. And tan is translated as phlegm, but the English word phlegm could never capture the entire scope of the word tan. Mm-hmm. So... Tan is phlegm. It is mucus coming out of your nose. It is mucus that a person might cough up. Okay, that, that is also tan. And it's used that way in Chinese medicine. However, the Chinese concept of tan 
is when fluids in the body become pathological and they congeal. So it's accumulations of fluids or accumulations of tissues. And that's what phlegm is in Chinese medicine. So in addition to the type of phlegm that we see, they also talk about hidden phlegm, which would be certain specific symptoms such as wheezing. Wheezing is called hidden phlegm. Mm -hmm. There are other types of hidden phlegm that are associated with um, mental, emotional, cognitive dysfunctions. Many of the mental illnesses have a component of phlegm, like um, schizophrenia, for example, mm -hmm. um, you know, severe depressions, bipolar disorder. All of these things would have, or many of these things from a Chinese medicine perspective, would have a component of phlegm to them. So Psychological. Psychological, like, yes. That's an interesting one. Yeah. I think that that's yeah. going to be a leap for someone coming from a really Western mindset, right? Right, right. And so how is it that we treat, well, well the same kinds of herbs that are treating actual mucousy types of phlegm will be added to these formulas that are treating these mental emotional conditions. Hmm. You know, so there, there is some kind of interesting link there. Now, um, to get back to the idea of adipose tissue, of fat, an accumulation of fat in the body by Chinese medicine standards is tan, it's phlegm. Um, a lump under your skin could be phlegm, like a swollen lymph node or a little fat tumor, a lipoma. That could be phlegm. Um, maybe a skin cancer that's growing uh, is an accumulation of tissue. It could be phlegm, could be tan. So we use different categories of herbs that treat phlegm, but we have subcategories within the phlegm herbs, right? Some of them are better for the mucousy types of phlegm, and some of them are better for the uh, mental emotional aspects, and some of them are better for you know, the lumps and the tumors and, and that sort of thing. So it's very important when we learn about medicine from another culture to sort of loosen up our thinking about the language around it and know mm -hmm. that words are just symbols. Words just give us, you know, help us form an internal representation, you know, yeah. as to what that thing is. And, and we got to be real careful when we already have our preconceived internal representation. Right. You know, and then we say, that, what? Bipolar disorder and phlegm? That's ridiculous. Well, they've completely missed the full scope of the word. Well, that, that's, you know, a key in communication, too. I mean, you try to be as precise as you can if you're teaching, right? And you try to be somewhat consistent. But at the same time, um, we have to remember that they are representations. And there is some intuition going on in, a, in the recipient, the listener, in order to grasp the meaning. Yeah. You know, to, to understand and and maybe um, one way of looking at language is that, you know, the words that you choose are an opener rather than a closer. I mean, mm. sure, they close out certain ideas, but they also open you to an inquiry. They open you to an experience, but then that experience is yours. So as you grow yeah. and learning um, how to, you know, attribute the meaning of that word and what you're going to connect the meanings to in your own experience, it's still, it's yours. It becomes yours the moment you start building those connections yeah. between what's been told to you and what you're starting to form as your own picture, your own yeah. internal representation of what that is. Right. Yeah. Right. We're, <laughs> we're getting tangential a little bit, but, I, but it's so important because just as we're finding out that now all of a sudden there's all this research saying bacteria can totally change your, your health. That's true for concepts too. And ideas, right. and, you know, many of us in the West are taught that 
things are pretty linear. You know, you, you, you learn in a very compartmentalized way. Either first there's this and then there's that. Yeah. You know, this is not connected to that. And then all of a sudden you get older, you start, you know, getting exposed to college level research papers and college level people who've traveled the world and bringing, and all of a sudden you get multidisciplinary studies and suddenly the world gets um, more connected but also more complex because it's not mm-hmm. so easy then to draw nice, neat little boxes around everything and have everything be, you know, understood that way. Yeah. There's the mind and there's the body. Like, right. well, hang on a second. More and more we see how related the mind is to the body. Yeah. You know, and vice versa. They, they affect one yeah. another. And now it's, now it's being quantified. Yeah. Yeah. In ways that, you know, we couldn't have imagined at one point. Yeah. Know? So here we are talking about these little bacteria and you and me and the wonderful people that might be listening to this conversation of ours, we are all forming our own internal representations about what these bacteria mean. We're forming little pictures in our mind, you know, um, where maybe some of us are picturing intestines and certain results that we might want. It's just good to keep this in mind as we go through these little adventures with these interesting topics that we're just playing with internal representations. We need to keep them loose. Right. Just keep them loose. Loose, baby. flexible. Yeah. Uh, expanded. Um, you know, on, on the topic of microbiomes, uh, you know, just like an idea influences a person, you know, your persona influences a person, your microbiomes influence people. Yeah. I mean, the contact that you have, j- just a handshake. You know, mm. if you wrestle or you give someone a hug or, you know, you share a bite to eat with the same utensil or whatever, you're exchanging microbiomes. Right. And bonding with our dogs and our cats and, you know, sharing their microbiomes. Yeah. And, you know, it's fascinating. And this sort of comes to the idea, and this is something that I wanted to um, bring up with you, is this idea of the bacteria being self. Mm. Are they really self? Like my microbiome, just like there was a time when we looked at the mind and the body being separate, Mm -hmm. right? Right now there is a risk of looking at the body and the microbiome being separate. They influence each other, but they're not the same thing. Well, where do we begin and where do these bacteria begin? I like the idea that we need to loosen up our boundaries as to what is self. And I would like to just assume that the microbiome and these bacteria, they really are us. If they can influence our thoughts, our moods, our digestion, uh, things that our body produces, then they are us, Mm. you know, and we are them. So it's neat to learn about a new aspect of ourself, right? So if we're learning about these bacteria and how they influence us, and we're learning about how we can influence them and how we can put more of them into our body with prebiotics and probiotics and symbiotics and all these things, I just want to invite anybody listening to play with this idea that to learn about these things is really to learn about you. It really is you. And you are a fascinating topic. You are. You are a fascinating topic and it's neat to learn more about what you are, who you are, and to learn new aspects of yourself that you didn't know about. And something like this, this topic of bacteria and finding out that, oh my God, I'm that too?
you take a sample of the microbiome, you're taking a sample of the person. And if you were to clean yourself completely of it, which I think there's probably some people who might feel creeped out by the idea that they have all this bacteria <laughs> growing on them and inside of them. But if you got rid of them, you'd die. You would yes. be absolutely incapable of defending yourself from the tremendous amount of potential infections and so on. All of us, that's one of the things that the Microbiome Project talks about, is that all of us um, have all of these lethal mm -hmm. diseases and uh, viruses and bacteria in our body. And it's the, th it's the environment that it lives in, you know, the, the enriched microbiome environment that prevents you from dying or getting really, really ill from those very things you're carrying with you all the time. Yeah. And you're surrounded by it. It's not just inside you. It's around you. It is. It's in the yeah. air. It's in it's in the food, and and some environments are you know heavier on that than yeah. others. But if you lived in a sterile environment, you just wouldn't live. Yeah. I had a client. They sort of had a I guess you could call it germophobia. Okay. Right. And um, she couldn't touch things without washing her hands or having some kind of protective coating. Every doorknob in her house had to have like a Kleenex to open it up. Uh, she wouldn't sit on her own couch or her own seat without putting a fresh towel on there. Yeah. Um, she had to clean the bathroom each and every time she used the bathroom. She talked about it as though she was hallucinating viruses and bacteria floating around her all the time, trying to get in. Almost like you imagine ghosts are trying to penetrate and possess yeah. you, right? How terrifying. It was terrifying for her. But what's fascinating is just, just a shift in her, her picture about bacteria and much of the things that we've been talking about in this episode, you know, was a component of the lesson for her to, to learn to appreciate that each and every time she was being exposed to her family and her, you know, habits that perhaps she thought were less hygienic than her own or whatever, that she's enriching her immunity. You know, right. just shifting that psychological sort of vantage point where now she could see it from a different point of view and see that, um, maybe the exposure was making her stronger. Yeah. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. The show is produced by Oliver Altine. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. You can find more information on our website, AuthenticityShow.com. Thanks for listening, and have an authentic day.